Good morning, Providence. So thankful you're here with us this morning. Uh, an hour earlier, right? A little bit earlier getting going this morning. If you're a guest, we're especially thankful that you're here with us. And just so you are familiar, if you aren't, aren't familiar with Providence, one of our, our desires, one of our prayers is that we would be faithful as a church to go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we get to celebrate that a little bit this morning because we have 18 mission trips that are planned that are going out from Providence and two went this last week, um, a trip to uh, Portland and a trip to Toronto. And just want to give you all a quick update on that. We have some pictures to show you as well. So if you look up on the screen here on the uh, left side, you'll see the team that went to Portland. Uh, these are our college students that went. And on the right side, you'll see um, Toronto. It's amazing to see that many people sacrificing of their time and their money and of their thoughts to go and share the gospel in these areas. And what they're doing in those two areas is they're partnering with young churches, what we call church plants, to help just build them up and encourage them and, and, and faithfully share the gospel while they're there. And so um, in Toronto specifically, they got out on college campuses and they just started to share the gospel with uh, a number of people. And we just want to celebrate and praise the Lord that um, at least one person came to faith that we know of from this trip. So we have a picture of him. If you look right there in the middle, the guy that looks like Jim Gaffigan, um, that guy named James came to know the Lord this last week and is just excited to faithfully follow him and get plugged into the church that we're supporting up there in Toronto. So let's just praise God for his faithfulness to do that this morning. Thankful for his um, faithfulness to seek out James and to save him, but also his faithfulness to seek and to save us um, who are distant and running from God. And so we're gonna talk about that some this morning and just uh, continue to, to thank and to praise Jesus. And so if you have a copy of God's word, we're gonna be in the book of Ephesians this morning, Ephesians chapter five. And we've been walking through the book of Ephesians for a while now, just kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're in chapter five and we'll be in verse 15. And uh, so we're getting close to the end now. We have one more chapter after this, chapter six. And as we walk through um, Ephesians chapter five, we're actually gonna do it a little bit differently this time. We're gonna just look at a couple verses at a time and walk through verses 15 through 21. Um, but before we dive in and, and into the text and start this morning, let's just uh, take a moment to pray. Take a moment right now, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, just to just stop and just ask God to speak to you this morning. Take a moment just to pray for me that I would communicate God's beautiful gospel this morning. Lord, we do, we do praise you just like that song we just sang, that we thank you, God. We thank you that you, um, in your wisdom, created all things. And that in your creation, you also attach design and purpose to our lives. God, we thank you for your word that, that corrects us when we falter, that, that gives us direction when we're confused, and God, that speaks into our everyday circumstances. And so, Father, give us wisdom today to hear, to believe, and to apply your word to our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, this morning I wanna start and just get you thinking. This is participation time. I want you to answer this question. Just answer it to yourself. But if you had to answer the question, what do you need most right now? How would you answer that? What do you need most 
right now? And I want you to answer that question as if you were sitting in your car driving or sitting across the lunch table, not like you're sitting in a religious meeting right now, right? Like, I want you to think about that for a second. How would you answer that question? What do you need most right now? You should think about that. There's probably a number of answers that are coming to our minds in this moment. What do we need most right now? I mean, some of us are sitting here thinking, if I just could get a new job, that's what I need right now. I need a new job. Some of us are thinking, I need a girlfriend or I need a wife. Like that, that'll be great if I could get that. If I could get out of debt, if I could just get a little more money, then I would be good. Some of us are thinking, if I could just lose 10 pounds, I'd feel so much better. Other of us are probably thinking, if I could just get a nap. Oh man, if I could just get a nap today, like that would be great. That's what I need more than anything else, just a nap. As we think about this, my, my guess is that most, if not all of our answers that we've given to this, have to do with our circumstances. That if our circumstances could just change, then things would be better. But I, I wanna submit to you this morning that even if we had different circumstances, things might not always be better. Even if we had the ideal circumstances, God gave us everything that we hoped in life, that maybe that wouldn't be what we need most of all. And if you don't believe me, just look, just look at Hollywood for a second. Think of ideal circumstances. These are people that have, have beauty. They have talent. They have money. They have influence. They have all of these things, right? Everything that we think we would need. And yet, what do you have with that? You have brokenness. You have pain. You have divorce. You have scandal. Like all that stuff is found there. So even the ideal circumstances, we would mess up as human beings. We would just mess up. Even if we were dealt the perfect hand, we would still mess it up. And even if we were gave, given the best circumstances, it's always changing. Circumstances are always changing. We get money and it flies away. We get health and then we lose it. Like circumstances are always changing. So what I want to say this morning, what I want to submit to you is what we need most is, is not different circumstances. What we need most is to be able to flourish no matter what the circumstances of our life are. We need to flourish no matter what the circumstances in our life are. And I think that's one of the things we find in this text today. So as we read this passage and we look at this text, what we're gonna see is God is saying, here's things that you need. And as I equip you with these things, you will flourish as you live life. And the first thing I want us to see is that we need to be wise in Christ Jesus. We need to be wise in Christ Jesus. Look at these first couple verses in our text with me. Verse 15, it says, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He starts here and he says, look carefully at how you walk. Now what he's meaning there when he talks about walk is your everyday routine, your everyday life. He uses the term walk because that's something that we all do every day. It's just routine. We don't even think about it. I'm not thinking, okay, here's my left foot, my right foot. Like 
just happens. We just do this. So Paul's saying, hey, your, your everyday life, I want you to live it carefully, live it with wisdom. It's interesting, Paul could have used a, a ton of different analogies, but I love the one he uses with walk because it shows that God cares about our everyday life, our ins and outs of working and playing and spending time with friends and family. God cares about all of those avenues. If he didn't, he would have said something like this, be careful how you somersault. Like maybe I can muster that up. You know, I do that every once in a while, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but I can, I, can, I can do that every once in a while. And that's important because if God only cared about these couple hours that you're here on Sunday morning, that's all that God cared about in your life, then maybe that's what it would have said. And just be careful how you somersault. But he's specific on be careful how you walk, how you live all of your life. When he says be careful there, what he's saying is look intently at it, examine it. Make sure you're living it wisely. How are you living your life? And if we look at the rest of our lives, we, we look carefully into everything else that we do, anything that at least we value, right? I mean, if we, we work, we, we consider how we work and we try to work efficiently. We try to work hard. Uh, we, we look at how we have our hobbies. We're even looking intently in, in our hobbies, right? If you play golf, you're like, okay, I want my swing to go this way and I want to hit the ball straight. I want to work on that. We think about that. Getting ready for church today. We've looked intently into what we wore, right? You, you looked in the mirror and you said, okay, is my, my hair fixed? Or um, you know, my shoes look good with this? Like we, we examine how we dress. We, we look carefully into all those different things of our lives. And all of those different things, we have different targets that we're trying to hit, right? We dress a certain way because we wanna have a, a nice appearance. That's our target. We, we wanna be a better golfer so we can impress our friends, right? Maybe that's our target. We wanna work hard so that we could be secure in our jobs, maybe have more money. All of those things are our targets that we look intently at. And here in this text, God's speaking and he says to us, look intently how you walk. Examine your whole life. And the goal, the target that we wanna hit is that we would walk wisely. We wanna be known as wise people. Now be careful right now because some of us think, I already am wise, I'm living a perfectly wise life right now. Whatever you have to say, I'm sure I'm already doing it. Be careful because Proverbs chapter 26 says this, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool and for him. Now, those are pretty, pretty bold words, but what it's saying there is that if you're not willing to take wisdom and counsel from others around you, if you're not willing to examine your life and, and to seek wise counsel, there's more hope for somebody who's foolish that just doesn't know why they do it than somebody who's arrogant that says, yeah, I've got it all together. And our heart always wants to go to, to be bent that way. I know what I'm doing and I know I'm doing it right. Even from when you're a child, I mean, we're not, we're not born with, with this wisdom. We just don't have it innately. I mean, if I could write a book of things that I've told my kids not to do, I mean, it's amazing. No joke, I said one day to my kids, please don't lick the dog. Don't lick the dog. Now, I have to say that to my kids. I mean, the wisdom is just not innate within them. It's not innate within us either. We make foolish decisions. And wisdom, we think we, we gain it when we gain intellect. But I've met a lot of wise, or a lot of smart people that aren't wise, 
mean, a lot of extremely educated people, people that I would trust to build a rocket for me to take me to the moon, but I wouldn't walk the streets of New York City with them because they don't have street smarts. <laughs> like just because you have education doesn't mean you have wisdom. So we don't get it um, when we're born. We, we don't get it with education necessarily. It's not bad, but we also don't get it with experience and age. It's not guaranteed just because you gain experience and age that you gain wisdom. It doesn't always happen like that. And I'll never forget uh, a perfect example of this. Um, I went to play golf one time. And uh, if you aren't familiar with golf, you normally go out with four people. And if you have less than four people, the golf course just pairs you up with somebody because they want to make as much money as they can, right? So there's three um, people, me and two other of my friends. We got paired up with this other guy um, who was probably, I would guess, in his, his mid-80s, maybe late 80s, and was still playing golf and was an incredible golfer. I mean, incredible golfer. And as we went from hole to hole, we just started to kind of share stories. And this guy had a ton of experience in life. I mean, he had come from a family of, I think, six or seven siblings. And he had talked about over time how he had just lost um, all of his siblings, that he was the only one left. And he had had, um, he, he had had three wives, but he didn't lose his three wives from divorce. He lost them through, through death. And, and he had experience with work where he had actually worked a great job and worked up high up in the company and had a lot of great experiences with, with work. And so we're just listening to this guy tell stories and it's amazing the experiences that he's had in life. So we get to the end um, of our round of golf on the 18th hole. One of the guys in the group says, hey, would you just impart some wisdom to us? Like you've experienced a lot in life. So like, what's some words of wisdom that you would give just some, some younger guys on, on how to live life? And I'll never forget this. This guy looked down and he thought for a minute. And then he looked up at, at us and he said, don't drink beer, it'll make you fat and exercise and you'll be good. And I'm like, okay, okay, like, that's true. Like, those are some good, helpful tips. But like, that's not the deep wisdom we were looking for, right? Like, just because he had all this experience and he had all, all of these things that happened in his life, he didn't give us the wisest words at the end here. But I'm thankful that in this text, like, if Paul was the one that was paired up with us and we asked him, hey, Paul, what are some, some tips that you would give us to, to live wisely? He gives us two in this text. He tells us, hey, here's two virtues of a wise person. Here's a little bit deeper things to hold on to. And the first thing is this, making the best use of your time. Look at verse 16. This is one of the ways we walk wisely. This is one of the targets we wanna hit is to make the best use of our times. This is the virtue we wanna grasp. Now, when it talks about time here, it's not talking about in the Greek, the, the way the word's based. It's not talking about like watch time. It's talking about opportunities, and what this is teaching us is that God has given, given us opportunities in our lives day in and day out to live wisely. And he says, what I want you to do is to examine your life, to look for these opportunities. And when you see them, seize them. Like make good in all the opportunities that God has blessed us with. Buy up the opportunity. Because even the wisest person knows how precious a commodity time is. But even the wisest person, once an opportunity has passed, can't get it back again. You can't. The Bible talks about life as just a, it's a vapor. It's a mist. That's just for a little bit and then it's gone. Time's this great equalizer for us all. We all have 60 minutes in a day and 24 hours, or 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day. We, we all have that. It's a great equalizer. 
We can't stretch time, but what we can do is look and examine and live wisely, taking the advantage of every opportunity that God has blessed us with. So we can't be foolish and and waste the time and waste the opportunities that God has given us. For me, I even think about opportunities that God has opened the door for me to share the gospel and how I miss some of those. I will never forget, I was um, sitting on campus in Charlotte, uh, UNC Charlotte, and I was reading an article that I had to read for seminary, and it was actually on hell. And this girl, I, I don't know who she is, she came and sat down beside me, and she just struck up a conversation. And she says, hey, what are you, what are you reading right now? And I was like, I'm actually reading an article on hell. And she's like, wow, like, that's really interesting. And I took that first step, and I said, oh, what, what do you think about hell? And she said, well, I think it's a, it's a bad place that, that nobody wants to go to. And to be honest with you guys, I wish I could say I took that opportunity to take the next step and tell her about Jesus and his love, but I didn't. Like, I did nothing. I was like, hmm, okay. And I just kept reading. Like, I completely missed the whole opportunity that was placed before me. Like, I, I didn't even take that next step. This girl says, hell's a terrible place that I don't want to go to. And I didn't give her, like, any hope. I didn't give her any gospel, any good news. And every day there's, there's people around us that God has placed, neighbors and coworkers and friends that are opportunities for us to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to declare the power and the might and the hope that we have in him. We need to seize these times of opportunities to share the Lord because, it says, because the days are evil. The days are evil. This world we live in is a broken world. It just is. But God has called us with wisdom to redeem the time and to help fix what is broken to take part in God's rescue mission to redeem this broken world. The days are evil, but we have hope in these days because of Jesus Christ. So let's be intentional to leverage every opportunity that we have to redeem these broken days. So what's God given you to use for his rescue mission? Are you called to to leverage your job? Are you called to leverage your, your friendships for his rescue mission? Are you called to leverage your vacation time or maybe your finances for his kingdom? Where is God giving you opportunities and then asking you to redeem that time? The question we wanna ask in our everyday lives is a thousand years from now, will we be glad with how we spent our today? A thousand years from now, we'll be glad with how we spent our today. And the only way we know that is that we know God's will. And when we align it with God's will, we can look forward and know that a thousand years from now, we will be happy with how we spend our time. And that's the next virtue of a wise person that we find here, is that we know God's will. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now I get more questions as a pastor about what the will of the Lord is than anything else. And we all have different techniques of trying to find God's will for our lives, right? God has a design too, but a lot of times it looks a lot like this. We're like, man, should I take that new job? I don't know. I don't know. God help me out. Um, and Samson smote the Philistine with the jawbone of a donkey. Hmm. Is that positive or is that negative? I, I don't really know what to do here. Like, I don't really know if this should be, that I should take it or not take it. I, I don't know. 
And we do that, but here's the reality that we need to grasp is that God desires for you and I to know his will more than we desire to know it. He does. God's not wanting to like hide his will from us to be like, I don't want, want you to know how you should spend your life. Like, I don't want you to know it. So like, I'm gonna hold it over here until maybe one day you're good enough that I'll give you a glimpse of it. It's not what God does. God lays out in his word clearly his will for our lives. But we need to be day in and day out building our life upon his word. So when that time comes, we understand God's principles and we can make wise decisions based upon what we know from God's word. Jesus told it in a parable like this. He said, there's two men. One man, built, one man builds his house on the sand and the storm comes and it falls down. And one man builds his house upon the rock and the storm comes and he continues to thrive. And he says that rock that he built his house on is the word of God. Now, what's so fascinating about this is the guy that built his house on the sand, nobody builds their house on the sand thinking that their house is gonna fall. Nobody's like, hmm, yeah, I really wanna build a house here because it's gonna crumble and fall. That's not what we do. But in our foolishness, a lot of times, we build it on things that are our principles instead of building it upon the word of God, something that will last. So I wanna wanna show you what this looks like very practically in our lives because God lays out what we call the theological world, his general principles or general will for all of our lives. And as we understand God's general will, it filters down into his particular will. Should I date this person? Should I watch that TV show? Should I spend my money this way? And one of the things he talks about in his word, you'll see these passages on the screen in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, it says this, for this is the will of God. Okay, we don't have to wonder. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, this is your being more like Christ, your holiness. And he says that you would abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you would know how to have self-control in holiness and in honor. So we read that, and this is a truth, this is a general principle for all of God's people that he desires for us to be more like Christ. That's what he desires for us to do. He wants us to have a purity within our heart and be holy. So when we turn on certain TV shows, we're like, should we watch this or not? Well, God's general principle is that he desires for us to be holy. So maybe I shouldn't watch that. Okay, does, does God want me to, to, to sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? Abstain from sexual immorality? No. We don't have to say, well, I really love him. Like I should evaluate this and think this through. Like, no, God's word's clear. Like that decision's been made for you if you're following the Lord. We just think on these truths and what we'll find is that God will lead us in the particulars of our lives. Another one is 1 Thessalonians chapter five. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. Here it is again, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if some of us sit sometimes in, in, in self-pity and we wonder, God, do you want me to stay this way? God, am I supposed to, to live in this loneliness in my life? God, am I supposed to feel this darkness and depression all the time? No, that is not God's will for your life. That's not where God wants you to rest. Though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't stay there. We don't lay down there and just rest. We don't. God wants us to rejoice to give thanks in all circumstances. And then this last one is from the book that we're in now, Ephesians chapter one. This one's a little more wordy, but you'll see it in here as well. 
Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, it says, In him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And here's the mystery of his will. According to his promise, which he set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. What's that, what's that saying there is that God's will is that you would be united with him. Like if you're in here today, today and you're thinking, does God really want me to follow him? Like I'm pretty messed up. Like I've got a lot of sin and, and, and junk in my life. Does God really want me to follow him? Yes, absolutely. He said, this is his will for you, that you be united with him. This is his desire. And then it says he wants to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth. And so that even affects how we work our jobs. We work our jobs to help bring things back into union with Christ. So we don't work and misspend our money or mismanage the time that work has given us, but rather we work diligently, being an example and redeeming things for the glory of God. So a wise person is gonna take God's general will and then he's gonna use it as a plumb line to make all the other decisions in life. And church, listen, if we know God's word, if we're reading it, all these other decisions will be so much easier as we grow in the Lord. And I would describe it like this. I have a a seven-month-old, a three-year-old, and a six-year-old right now. And I'm teaching them the principles of how to live life in the Epley family. I'm teaching them that right now. Like they get disciplined for the disses. If they disobey, they're dishonest or they disrespect, right? And that's, that's kind of my rule. So I'm teaching them to be honest and to work hard and to respect all those things. And so they're learning that now when they're young. But if, if they get to college one day, my son Reese goes to college and he calls me up on the phone and he says, hey dad, I've been really wondering um, and I wanted to ask you if I could do this. Is it okay if I, if I go um, play basketball with my roommate this afternoon? I'd be like, why are you asking me? Like, you're, you're an adult now. Why are you asking me that question? <laughs> Like it would just be odd, right? He should know these principles and he should be living in line with these principles of, of what it means to, be, to live a good life. What's well, the same in the family of God? A lot of times we've been walking with God for years, but we haven't dove into his word and we don't know his word well. And so we're asking him questions that God's like, hey man, I care more about who you are than where you are. And so maybe think about, am I lining my life up with, with God's design? Is that, and as we do that, we're walking in wisdom, we're grasping all of these things. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to walk wisely, redeeming the time and living according to his will. What's so amazing about this is if we wanna grasp wisdom, what, what God's word does is it just doesn't give us wisdom. Rather, it points us to wisdom. What I mean by that is in Colossians and another book of the New Testament, it says this about Jesus. It says that Jesus in him, all the treasures of wisdom are found. All the treasures of wisdom are found in Jesus. So as we read the Bible, what we're doing is we're, we're learning who Jesus is and we're learning how to relate to him. Wisdom is found in a person, not in a fact. What's so amazing about this is this is different from every other religion. Every other religion out there is different. 
Every other religion talks about grasping wisdom. And Jesus says, I am wisdom. I'll give it to you. Others say, I wanna grasp this abstract thing of truth. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the truth. And what's so amazing about this is because it's that simple and it's about a person and not about facts and knowledge and abstract theories, it makes it easy for even a child to know and to trust and to follow Jesus. Because they don't have to understand all the depths of wisdom. All they have to do is understand Jesus Christ and his love and his sacrifice. This is different than everything else the world has to offer. It's found in Jesus. So if you wanna have wisdom in every circumstance, if you wanna flourish in every circumstance, it's founded first in Jesus because in him, the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are found. The second thing we need to do to flourish in any circumstances is that we need to be filled with the spirit. We need to be filled with his spirit. Look at the text again in Ephesians um, chapter five, verse 18. It says, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with spirit. There's two commands we find in this one verse, one negative and one positive. The negative is don't get drunk. The positive is be filled with the spirit. Now, why in the world would, would Paul put those back to back? Like, why would he put drunkenness with the spirit? Like, it's just kind of odd, right? Well, there's a couple reasons why. Um, we'll talk about just a few of them, but I think one is because both are ways to deal with life's pressures and anxieties. They are. We can pursue drunkenness or we can pursue the spirit. But both of us lead them, but both of these things lead us in different destinations. See, drunkenness depresses our thoughts and senses of reality. It makes you less aware of what's going on in your surroundings where the Holy Spirit, by contrast, stimulates us and makes us more aware of reality. The Holy Spirit helps us to cope with difficulties by opening our eyes to the promises of the gospel. And alcohol rids our worry by making us forget. The Spirit instead rids our worries by helping us to remember who God is and what he's done. Drunkenness gives us courage by making us less aware of the dangers around us. But the Spirit gives us courage by showing us how much larger our God is of anything we're afraid of. Like he's showing these parallels. Drunkenness can, can rob you of self-control and of wisdom and of balance and even of speech. But the Holy Spirit does the opposite. It, it strengthens us where we're designed to be strengthened. And if you look at it, the contrast, one is moving you more to being more like an animal that you can't speak well, you can't walk well, you can't think well, you can't reason well. And then the Holy Spirit does the exact opposite. It heightens you to be the human that you're designed to be, that you, you would think well, that you'd reason well, that you'd speak well, that you'd act well, that you'd walk into the right places. All of those things. This is important for us as we think about this, like, to see the contrast between the two of them. And I know it might seem odd to think about being filled with the Spirit. What does that even mean, right? What does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? Like that's, that's kind of odd. That's kind of sci-fi way out there. Like, okay, what is that? Filled with the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it and look at the parallel of alcohol, all those things that alcohol slurs, the Spirit strengthens. And so, strength when we're filled with the spirit it's it's guiding our words the words that we would speak are different the things that we would talk about are different because the spirit is indwelling us it's filling us 
The things we think about, we have more clarity and thought and the things we think about and dwell on are different. The Holy Spirit's filling us. It's, it's aligning our will with his will. Being filled with the Spirit is doing that. And so our, our thoughts, our inclination, even our emotions are guided by the Holy Spirit when we're filled by him. There's an action connected to this Holy Spirit being filled in us. And if that's still not clear enough, that still doesn't make sense that everything's aligning with what God's design is. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it talks about people being filled with the Spirit in light of their work. It's fascinating. They're building the temple for God. And it says that God filled them with his spirit so they had the knowledge and they had the ability to do the work of God. Now, this isn't talking about priests in this moment. These are talking about construction workers. Like literally those that are building the temple and placing the blocks down. So when it talks about the spirit filling us, it's not just like some holy religious setting of a Holy Spirit will fill me when we come into church on Sunday morning. Rather, it's in your everyday lives, the Spirit is filling you and changing how you work and you live. And if you're a believer, have no doubts this morning that the Holy Spirit is within you. That's not up for debate. The Bible says that if you've come to trust Christ, you have his Spirit. That's within you. The question is, are we being filled with his Spirit? We've talked about this over the last few weeks, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by by rebelling against him. He, he's, he's laid on our heart, we should do this. And we're like, nope, I'm absolutely not gonna do that. I'm actually gonna do the exact opposite. We go the other direction. We can also quench the Holy Spirit where he's fanning a flame in your heart. And he's like, hey, do, do these things. R- read my word, speak words of encouragement to other people, share the gospel. And this time we're not going in a complete rebellion in this direction. Rather, we're just like, I just don't really care. I'm just not gonna do anything. We're quenching the Holy Spirit when we do those things. We're quenching him. And God says, no, I want you to be filled, all of your life to be filled, and that your will would align with God's will. Your actions would align with his actions, that you would be obedient to him. There's a couple more things I just want us to grab from this text, though, about being filled with the Spirit. The first thing is this, that it's a command, so for those of us that have checked out right now and you're like, oh, well, once we get past the filling of the spirit thing, then I'll move on to the next point. No, this is a command that's given to us, given to the church to be filled with the spirit. It's not an option. This is God's purpose that our mission would align with his mission and not our selfish desires. Secondly, this is, you can't see it in, in, in your text, but if you look in the original Greek text, this is written in the plural, that we should all be filled with the spirit if you know Jesus Christ. Now, why that's important is that means this is not just for the the pastors and the super holy people that are in seminary. This is for all of us. All of us are called to be filled with the spirit. And lastly, it's in the passive tense. So the Holy Spirit is trying to do these things in your life. You don't even have to try to work and grasp these things. It's just about being obedient, not rebelling and not being apathetic. And he will fill your life. Now, why this is so beautiful, being filled with the Spirit, is because I think Psalm chapter four says it best in verse seven. You'll see this on the screen, but it says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Grain is your, your livelihood. Wine is your luxury. He's saying, with your Spirit within me, 
I have more joy than those that have all this money and have all this luxury. No matter what the circumstance is, whether it was good or bad, he still has more joy than others who don't have the spirit. So if we wanna flourish, if we wanna flourish in this life, then we must have the spirit within us filling us. We must have the wisdom of God that we would walk wisely. And the last thing I want us to see is that we need to be a part of the church if we wanna flourish in life. We need to be a part of the church, a part of community to flourish in life. Look at God's word with me again. Look at verse 19. It says, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs and singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You'll see in verse 19 and in verse 21, this term to one another, one another. This is used 59 times in the New Testament. It's this picture that we're connected, that we're a part of community, that the church needs to be connected. It can't be alone. If you look at God's word, his design was never for us to be segregated and alone, to be separated from others. He designed for us to do life in community all the way back to, the, to creation. Think about it. God's making all of these things and he's saying, okay, the heavens and the earth, like that's good, made that. Light and darkness, that's good, made that. Animals, made that. Humans, I made that. All this is good. And then he gets to the point where he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for you to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. This was not God's design for us to do this alone. Here's the reason why. So we go through different circumstances in life. The Bible talks about the, the devil. It says he's like a lion that's looking for someone to devour. Someone, not some groups of people, but he's looking for someone, someone who's isolated, someone who's alone. And he wants to, to attack that person. It's no different for us. He's still doing the same thing for us. He's looking at us to devour us when we're separated, when we're away from the church, we're away from community. It matters that we're in this room this morning. It absolutely matters because the devil's a lion looking for someone to devour. Now, some of you guys might've seen this. You might be a part of the 80 million people that have viewed this on YouTube. It's called the Battle of Kruger. It's it's an amazing video. And every time I've watched it, we can't show it this morning because it's eight minutes long, but it's worth every bit of the eight minutes, all right? But it's this home video that these people basically are on a tour bus that are doing a safari. And this guy's recording as they see these water buffalo kind of come up over this hill. And then there's a lion that they see crouched and it's waiting to pick off one of the water buffalo. This is a, it's an amazing story. You have to go watch the whole thing. But what happens is he does. The, the lion leaps and he pulls away one of the calves, one of the weak ones that are kind of isolated from the group and he pulls it away. There's a lot that happens in between this and where it gets to at the end, but what's amazing about it is the, the water buffalo don't sit back and, and basically be spectators and say, man, I really hate it for that water buffalo. Like, man, that, that stinks for him. No, instead what they do, they, they rally and they come back and it looks like this. They come back to get the water buffalo. 
And there's not just one lion here. There's multiple lions now. And these water buffaloes circle them and push them towards the water. And I'm not kidding. It's amazing. They throw one lion like eight feet in the air. And these lions, like they scatter, they run. And then this water buffalo gets up and walks back into the herd. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. But the same is true for us. We can't sit back and be spectators. The church is called to be a community. It's not an event that we go to. It's a community that we're a part of. And as we do this, what we find is support and encouragement and strength to, to thrive no matter what the circumstances are, to flourish. That's what God's design is. He put together this community to, to live on mission for him and to, to, to share the gospel to the glory of his name. God built that for a purpose for you and I. And what I love about this text is we don't have to wonder what it looks like. He hashes out three things in this text of what this community, what this church should look like. In verse 19, it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and in singing, making melody to the Lord with our heart. So one of the things that we do as a church, we sing. We don't come up here and sing so we can lead a concert on Sunday morning so you can be spectators and watch. Like, that's not the goal of why we do this. I mean, there's a reason why we put the karaoke words on the screen so that we can sing to the Lord. We wanna sing of God's greatness and his goodness. And yes, there's a, there's a vertical um, point to our worship that we're singing to God and his goodness and his greatness. But what I love about this text is it talks about there's a horizontal level as well. As we sing, we're actually singing to one another. Now, what does that look like practically? I mean, there's weeks you can come in here and you're struggling with sin all week and you're struggling with darkness all week and you wonder, can God forgive me of that? We wonder, is God still good in this moment? And we can listen to other people singing of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his mercy to forgive us. And it reminds us, it reminds us. I'll never forget on a Sunday morning, I got to stand beside a, a guy that I knew had had a crazy difficult week, a lot of suffering and a lot of pain in his life. And as I'm watching him sing and hearing him sing to the Lord, it's moving my heart and it's stirring me to sing. Like he's singing so loud in the midst of his suffering. Why can I not sing? Well, you have to be a part of community. You have to know one another in order to celebrate those moments. I mean, there's times where I come in here and I just, I just listen for a moment. Just listen as y'all sing to the Lord to remind me, I'm not alone. We're doing this together as a group. So Paul points this out. We should sing to one another. And I love how he tells us how to sing. In verse 16, he says, or in verse 19, he says, make a melody to the Lord with your heart. Some of us don't sing because we can't really sing, right? I mean, you notice I was standing by myself up here. It's because everybody knows how I sing and they don't want to stand beside me because I'm that terrible. But the good news is it's not about what our mouths can do and what about our, our voices can do. It's we're singing to the Lord with our heart. We're making a joyful noise to the Lord. We're singing to him. That's not the only thing he mentions here. We also give thanks. We give thanks. I think it's so interesting that when we read the pages of scripture, God has to continue to remind us to give thanks. What in the world do we have to always be reminded to be thankful? Like even if we just got the beginning where God created us and gave us life, that would have been enough to be thankful for. But page after page, he continues to bless us and he continues to say, be thankful, be thankful. And I think the reason why is because 
What ingratitude does is it blinds us to all the blessings in our lives. Ingratitude blinds us to all the blessings in our lives. I'll never forget, not long ago, I called up a friend who loves the Lord and I just vented to him. I was just complaining about everything you can imagine from weather to work, from family to finances. I'm just like complaining and complaining and complaining. And at one point he just stops me. He's like, Ryan, what are you thankful for? I just, I just stopped and I was like, man, I don't know. And he starts just naming things to be thankful for in my life. Man, I see how God's blessed you this way. I see how God's blessed you that way. He just starts naming these things. But because of my ingratitude, I was blinded to all those things that God had blessed me in my life. And that's why we need community. That's why we need the church to help us in those dark moments to remember to give thanks to the Lord. Because ultimately ingratitude is, it's just, it's not only just blinding us, I mean, it's rank with unbelief. Because all the things that we have is from the Lord. Every bit of it. The Bible says that all the silver and gold is mine, declares the Lord. Every penny in your bank account, in my bank account, is God's anyway. He's given it to us. His word says that he exalts and he brings low. So God's the one that's given you that, those things. Psalm 139 says that before you were born, he fashioned every day for you. God has fashioned this day for you. God has, has given us all these things and it comes from his hand. And so though we might look at ingratitude and think, this is a respectable sin. It's really not that bad. What we need to see is that ingratitude is one of the reasons that Christ hung on the cross and died for our ungratefulness and our unbelief to realize that everything we have comes from God. Every bit of it. And I know some of us are sitting here right now and you're thinking, well, I'd like to give thanks, but right now is just not the best time in my life to give thanks. But look what the text says in verse 20. Giving thanks when? Always. Always giving thanks. So your life might not be what you hoped it would be right now. Your job might be demanding and not what you not fulfilling. But God says to still give thanks. Your health might not be exactly what you hoped it would be. It might be fleeting away, but God says, still give thanks always. Okay, for what, God? I don't see anything to be thankful for. For what? For everything. That's what verse 20 says. For everything to God the Father. We should be thankful for all things to the Lord. So we should sing as a church together. We should be thankful. We should also submit. That's what verse 21 says. The thing that seems so uh, oppressive in our culture today to think about submitting, but God's word talks about it in a positive light because when we look at verse 21 and you see submit to one another, we immediately think of like the negativity behind submission. That if I submit to somebody, that means I'm less than them. But our identity is being created in the image of God. And it's found as we look through the pages of, of scripture, this is who we are. And so when we submit to others, what we're doing is we're really modeling Christ design. It's not that we're less than people. We're reflecting Jesus Christ and what he did. And it's funny because we struggle with submitting to one another. I think it's our culture. We struggle to submit to one another, but it's what Christ did. As we close, I just want you to, to turn one page in your Bible, at least in mind, to Philippians. 
Because in Ephesians chapter five, it says, submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Why would he point to Christ right there? Because Christ submitted to the Father. Look at Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse three. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. It says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God, did not count at equality with God, something to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient, this is submitting to the will of the Father. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, why would Jesus do all of this? Why would he submit his life in this way that he would leave his glory of heaven behind and come to earth to die on a cross and be obedient to the Father's will. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he said, I have come, came, that you may have life and that you would have it to the full. Why did Jesus come? That we might flourish in this life and for all of eternity to the glory of his name. Let's pray to that end. Father, we, we come now and just pray, thanking you for Jesus. His life shows us what it means to walk wisely, and to make the best use of our time. Lord, we thank you that through your death and your resurrection that the Holy Spirit can now fill us with your presence. And lastly, Lord, we thank you for one another, for this gift of the church. God, how it strengthens us and sustains us. Lord, help us to treasure all of these things that we might walk wisely to the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.